This is Wealth Wake Up with Dick Donahue on KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. Welcome to Wealth Wake Up Live. Dick Donahue with you Saturday morning, live and in studio. And we're going to take a look at our weekly wrap. And we saw that the stock market registered sizable gains on the heaviest week of earnings reporting in this third quarter season. The calendar featured results from Apple, which didn't live up to the market's high expectations and language following its report. Earnings news was generally met with a positive reaction, helped in large part by the significant drop in market rates. The 10-year yield declined 21 basis, or 31 basis points. That would be 0.31% this week to 4.51%. The two-year yield fell 17 basis points to 4.86%. Those moves were partially a reaction to the following factors. First of all, the Bank of Japan's tweak on its yield curve control policy was not as hawkish as feared, tampering concerns about the possibility of a destabilizing unwinding of carry trades. Secondly, the Treasury reduced its fourth quarter borrowing estimate from by $76 billion to $776 billion. And the Treasury said its fourth quarter refunding would involve larger issuance and auction sizes for this two, three, and five, and seven-year maturities than the 10, 20, and 30-year maturities. Short sellers covered their positions. Another important factor driving activity in the Treasury market was the FOMC meeting at your Fed meeting. The, co- the committee voted unanimously to leave the target rate at Fed, runs, Fed rates unchanged at five and a quarter to five and a half, and Fed Chair Powell's press conference was deemed as less hawkish than feared. Mr. Powell noted that the Fed has come very far with its rate hike cycle, and the policy decisions have gotten more two-sided. Then the Bank of England also left its key unchanged rate unchanged, although the vote was 63, with three voters favoring a 25 basis point rate hike. So some of the key economic releases this week all worked in favor of the markets thinking that the Fed could be done raising rates. The ISM manufacturing index contracted at a faster pace in October. It was actually 46.7, had been expected to be 49. The third quarter labor costs declined eight-tenths of one percent on back of the strongest productivity increase at 4.7 percent since the third quarter of 2020. And the October jobs report slow, showed slower payroll growth, rising unemployment, and slower wage growth. The Fed Fund's futures market isn't pricing in any more rate hikes over the next 12-month horizon. In fact, it's pricing in at least two rate cuts over the next 12 months, according to the CME Fed Watch tool. The sharp drop in rates acted as a springboard for stocks, aided by short covering activity and a fear of missing out on further gains in the seasonality strong period of the market. Last week brought the S&P 500 into technical correction territory. This week's rally, however, brought the S&P stock above its uh, index above its 200-day and 50-day moving averages. The rate-sensitive real estate sector was the best performer. It was up 8.6%, followed by financials up 7.4%, consumer discretionary up 7.2%, and information technology up 6.8%. The worst-performing sector was energy, but it climbed 2.3% as well. Just about everything participated in the rally. The S&P 500 equal-weight ETF rose 5.9%. The make-a-cap growth ETF rose 66 
The Russell 3000 Value Index rose 5.8, and the Russell 3000 Growth Index rose 6.3. So the U.S. dollar was weaker this week due to the thinking that the Fed might be done raising rates. The U.S. dollar index fell 1.4% to 105.04. On Monday, the major indices closed near their best levels of the day, with gains ranging from 0.7 to 1.6%. Stocks experienced somewhat choppy action early on, but the rebound built up steam in the afternoon trade after Friday's close brought the S&P 500 into correction territory, i.e. it was down more than 10% from its prior prior closing high. Gains were fairly broad-based, paced by outperforming mega caps. The mega cap ETF growth DF jumped 1.5% versus a 1.2% gain in the market-weighted S&P. Apple, for its part, logged a 1% gain ahead of its earnings report on Thursday. The positive bias was partially uh, tied to a buy-the-dip mentality after Friday's disappointing finish, aided by some corporate news and relief that the Israeli-Hamas war is still a two-party war. Semiconductor stocks were a notable pocket of weakness, sliding alongside um, the different sliding on site on semiconductor, which reported better than expected third quarter results, but issued disappointing fourth quarter guidance. There was little economic uh, news as of uh, Monday that of, of substance. On Tuesday, the major indices all started the session with somewhat mixed action, oscillating between Monday's closing low levels. Buying activity picked up in the afternoon trade, though, which helped some mega caps to recover from early losses or to extend early gains. The afternoon move higher left the market indices near their highs in the day, somewhat modest gains. The S&P 500, for its part, was approaching 4,200. The mega cap ETF uh, rose uh, half a percent. The market cap weighted S&P closed with a seven-tenths of one percent gain. All 11 S&P 500 sectors gained, uh, led by real estate, up 2%. Financials up 1.1%. Communication services sector was up 2%, two-tenths of 1% was the, was the uh, slimmest gain. The big batch of earnings news since Monday closed was met with mixed reactions. Dow components Caterpillar and, and Amgen uh, were losing standouts following their earnings reports, while Pinterest and... Uh, Artistra, Net, Artistra Net Networks registered outsized gains for their quarterly reports. So looking at Tuesday's economic data, we saw that the uh, October Chicago PMI came in at 44. The third quarter employment cost index was up 1.1%. The key takeaway from this report is that compensation costs decelerated to 4.3% for the 12 month period ending in September versus 5% in September to 22. Still, that's not enough to change or convince the Fed that can think about cutting rates anytime soon. We saw the August FHAFA housing price index was up six-tenths on 1%. The S&P 500 Case-Shiller home price index was up 2.2%. The October Consumer Confidence Index hit 1026 and the key takeaway from this report is that rising prices, higher interest rates are pressuring consumer confidence, particularly among householders age 35 and up, irrespective of their income group. And on Wednesday, we saw the major indices started the month of November with solid gains, closing near the best levels of the session. 
Upward moves were relatively modest in the early going, though as participants waited for the FOMC decision following Fed Chair Powell's press conference. The FOMC did what everyone expected it to do, voted unanimously to leave the target rate for the Fed's Fed's rates unchanged. In the press conference, Mr. Powell acknowledged that the Fed has come very far with this rate hike cycle and that uh, risks that with policy decisions, doing little, too little or too much, have gotten uh, more two-sided, whereas the risk in the first year or so of tightening was all on the side of not doing enough. He said the Fed rates futures market isn't pricing in any rate hikes in the 12-month horizon. In fact, it's pricing in at least two rate cuts over the next 12 months, according to the CME FedWatch tool. The major indices moved to the best levels of the session, as Fed Cheryl was speaking. Uh, Mega caps powered the afternoon move, but many other stocks contributed. So reviewing Wednesday's economic data, we saw that the weekly Mortgage Banker Association index was down 2.1%. The October ADP employment change was 113,000. The October S&P Global U.S. Manufacturing PMI final was at 50. The September construction standing spending was up four-tenths of 1%. The key takeaway from this report is that there was balanced strength in September between private and public construction spending. They gave a boost to total construction spending, which was nice, which is up nicely from year over year and uh, well out of any hard landing zone. The October ISM manufacturing index is at 47.67. The key takeaway from this report is an understanding that the pace of construction and manufacturing sector accelerated in October, which is something that uh, can be construed as a weakening indication for the economy in the fourth quarter that should help temper some of the acceleration seen in market rates. We saw the September JOLTS report. Job openings came in at 9.553 million. Dick Donahue with you with Wealth Wake Up Live here in KGMI. We'll be back shortly. How safe do you feel? Fentanyl has crept into our schools and our community. Children, friends, and neighbors, this affects us all, and I'm frustrated with the lack of urgency regarding this crisis. I'm Hannah Ortis, and as your next Whatcom County Council member, I am committed to having hard conversations so that we can find real solutions. Our most vulnerable are depending on us to put people over politics. This is my home, and I will represent each and every one of us. I'm Hannah Ortis, and I ask for your vote this November. Paid for by Hannah for Whatcom. We're heading across the pond for this week's PNW Perk. Archer's Ale House is back with another PNW Perks deal Thursday at 8 a.m. Whether you're looking for a place to catch the game this season, enjoy some truly incredible food, or looking to have a great time in general, Archer's Ale House is the hottest place around. Stop in for dinner and a pint, stay for trivia and karaoke. Serving a rich, hearty menu, rotating beers, and extensive bottle list, seasonal cocktails, and a new late-night menu. It's European pub vibes right here in the Pacific Northwest. This Thanksgiving, Archer's will be open 10 a.m. till 10 p.m., starting with a proper Irish breakfast, then serving up a traditional all-you-can-eat feast starting at 2. So you can leave the cooking and cleaning to someone else and enjoy the day with your friends or come make some new ones. Stop by the Archer Ale House on 10th and Harris in Fairhaven. The Archer Ale House, changing the game. Thursday at 8 a.m., spend $25 and get 50 bucks to spend at Fairhaven's favorite pub, the Archer Ale House. Visit pnwperks.com for details. We don't have the usual traffic jams that they have in the big city. But sometimes, things happen to snarl everything up. Depend on KGMI to keep you cruising to your destination with KGMI Traffic Alerts. 
We'll tell you where the trouble spots are. And if you see problems on the road, give us a call at 360-676-5464 so we can spread the word. KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM and KGMI.com. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of KGMI or the Cascade Radio Group. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Asset Advisors, we are located out on the Pacific Highway in the Pacific Commerce Center. That's out next to Wilson Furniture. Our address is 5060 Pacific Highway, Suite 101, Ferndale, 98248. Our phone number, 360-733-1200. And check out our website. Uh, we It's back up running again. However, the wealthwakeup.com link, for some reason, is not working like it should. But you can get there by going to AssetAdvisorsLLC.net. That's AssetAdvisorsLLC.net. And we're working on trying to figure out why the WealthWakeUp.com link is not working correctly. Okay, continuing on with this week's market update. On Thursday, we saw the stock market rally mode on Thursday, aided by falling interest rates, positive earnings news, and short covering activity. The Russell 2000 registered a 2.5% gain, while the three main indices closed with gains ranging from 1.7% to 1.9%. The S&P closed above its 200-day moving average at 4,222 and the 4,300 level. The 10-year note fell another 12 basis points to 467. The two-year note rose one basis point to 498. The drop in long-term rates was aided by some softening manufacturing PMI data out of the Eurozone. The Bank of England's decision to keep its bank rate unchanged at 5.25%, some short-covering activity in the Treasury market, as well as a third-quarter productivity report showing an 8 tenths of 1% decline in unit labor costs. Just about everything came along for the rally in the stock market. 29 to 30 Dow components settled with a gain. All 11 S&P 500 sectors closed in the green. Reactions and earnings news were generally positive, which acted as the support of the broader market. Other factors that played into the notion that the Fed could be done raising rates, which followed remarks made on Wednesday by Fed Chair Powell at his press conference, and the seasonality factor. November, on average, has historically been the strongest month for the S&P 500. It marks the start of the best six-month period for the S&P. Looking at Thursday's economic data, we saw that the weekly initial job claims came in at 217,000, the continuing claims at 1.818 million. The key takeaway from this report is much the same, which is to say that the low level of initial claims and consist- are consistent with material weakening in the labor market. We also saw September factory orders come in at 2.8% increase. The key takeaway from this report is the factory orders in September were boosted nicely by strength in transportation orders, but the increase wasn't just a transportation story. And on Friday, the stock market closed out the winning week on a strong note. A loss in Apple in response to its fiscal first first quarter revenue uh, 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 did not live up to analysts' expectations. Limited index gained somewhat, but broad buying activity offset the weakness in Apple. Buyers were keying off of a sharp drop in rates that followed Friday morning's economic data. 
Many stocks participated in Friday's advance, which was aided by short covering activity and a fear of missing out on further gains in the seasonality strong period of the market. Even Apple recovered a good bit for what is in loss, having been down as much as 2.4% earlier. The S&P 500 closed above its 50-day moving average at 4,347 after falling to 4,103 a week ago. The Russell 2000, which had underperformed relative to other major indices, recently closed with the biggest gain in the day up 2.8% and a whopping 7.6% for the week. So reviewing Friday's data, we saw that October's non-farm payrolls came in at 150,000. Uh, the October's in the pri- non-farm private payrolls at 99. We saw that the October average hourly earnings were up two-tenths of 1%. The unemployment rate was up to 3.9%, and the October average work week was at 34.3 hours. It seems silly to be cheering weakening activity in the labor market, but the key takeaway from this report is that it resonates as a soft landing report that will keep the Fed from raising the Fed rates again. The September or October S&P Global U.S. Services PMI came in at a final of 50.6, and the October ISM Non-Manufacturing Index came in at 51.8. The key takeaway from these reports is that the largest sector of the U.S. economy is in a slower growth mode, but importantly, on the soft landing view, it is not contracting. So, looking at the summary for this week, year-to-date, as of yesterday, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which was up 5.1% this week, was up 2.8% for the year. Your NASDAQ Index, which was up 6.6% this week, is up a whopping 28.8%. The S&P 500, which was up 5.9% for the week, is now up 13.5% year-to-date. And the Russell 2000, which was up 7.4%, is flat at 0% gain loss for the year. Okay, looking at some of our high-frequency data that we follow, we saw that initial jobless claims, as I mentioned a minute ago, for the week ending October 27th, came in at 217,000. That was an increase of 2.4% in job claims. And continuing claims as of October 20th, 1,818,000, that was a 2% increase. We also saw box office receipts, which have been very volatile, but as of the 2nd of November, uh, saw a 39.6% increase. Uh, rail car traffic was down about 1.3%. We saw steel production up two-tenths of 1%. Hotel occupancy at 66% for the week ending October 28th was down 4.3%. We saw t- TSA checkpoint data as of November 2nd, 2,233,032 passengers a day. That was a 9.1% drop in the amount of air traffic in a week. We saw the supply of motor gasoline as of October 27th was uh, down about 1.9%. And global commercial flights as of November 2nd were at 121,103. And that was a 3% drop in the number of global flights as well. Uh, I'm going to come back here. I'm going to take a break a little bit early. When I come back, I'm going to talk a little bit about where the IRS, where our tax revenues are coming from, who's paying taxes, and a little bit bit of information on that that you might find interesting. So we're going to take a break a little bit early. We'll be back in a minute.
DeWard and Bodie's Black Friday Early Access Sale starts now, and you don't want to miss it. Black Friday pricing is available now on appliances, barbecues, mattresses, and more at all three DeWard and Bodie locations in Bellingham and Burlington. This is your chance to score the lowest prices of the year on refrigerators, dishwashers, laundry sets, ovens, cooktops, and more. Bundle and save on kitchen appliance packages with huge cashback rebates from your favorite brands like Whirlpool, LG, KitchenAid, GE, Bosch, and more in stock and on sale. Upgrade your mattress this weekend with Black Friday savings on Tempur-Pedic, Sealy, and Stearns & Foster. This weekend, keep your cash and pay no money down and no interest for two full years on qualifying orders. Plus, shop in confidence with DeWard & Bodie's 30-day local price match guarantee on select in-stock items and get fast professional delivery on qualifying orders. Shop the biggest sale of the season during Black Friday early access at DeWard & Bodie right now in Bellingham and Burlington. Financing OAC offer qualifications apply. Dr. John's Auto Clinic, located in Bellingham on Kentucky Street, is here for your auto repair and service needs. Trusted and affordable auto repair in Bellingham for over 25 years. Ask about their oil change and maintenance inspections. You can hear Brian from Dr. John's Auto Clinic every Saturday on In the Shop on Newstalk 790 KGMI. Or check out Dr. John's Auto Clinic at djautoclinic.com. And on Facebook for the latest in auto repair news. Dr. John's Auto Clinic, reliable, honest, and a part of this community for over 25 years. Dedicated to service, shining a light on local individuals, law enforcement, and groups giving back to our community. Brought to you by Nieder House of Luxury in Bellingham. Dedicated to service congratulates Allied Arts of Whatcom County upon their selection this year for the Community Impact Award. Allied Arts of Whatcom County is one of nine honorees of the 2023 Governor's Arts and Heritage Awards, the highest honor bestowed by the Governor's Office for accomplishments in arts and culture. Active since 1979, the staff and volunteers of Allied Arts of Whatcom County empower artists via events and gallery space, enrich school children through education outreach, and work as local liaisons to art enthusiasts of all ages. Congratulations to all, and thank you for your service to our community. Dedicated to Service is brought to you by Nieder House of Luxury. With Bellingham's finest selection of jewelry, including GIA-certified diamonds and lab-grown diamonds and custom design. Nieder House of Luxury, 21 Bellwether Way, Suite 107, next to Lombardi's Back Patio. The latest local news and important topics of the day from the West Mechanical Studio. Tired of inefficient heating, poor indoor air quality, and rising energy bills? Contact West Mechanical today to explore going ductless with a system from Mitsubishi Electric Heating and Air Conditioning. Find them at westmechanical.net. Get the latest news and information 24-7 with KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM in Bellingham and KGMI.com. CBS News Brief. Secretary of State Antony Blinken is in Jordan meeting with the head of the United Nations Agency helping Palestinian refugees. It's important to be here at UNRWA, which is doing extraordinary work every single day as a lifeline to Palestinians in Gaza and at great cost. This as civilians in Gaza continue suffering as Israel continues hammering the area. CBS's Deborah Pata is there. Just this morning, several more strikes in Gaza hitting a hospital entrance, a water tank supplying communities in the south, and a school used to house thousands of people whose homes have been flattened. You have a little extra time to party overnight. That's thanks to daylight saving time, which goes into effect at 2 a.m. Eastern in most states. CBS's Stacey Lynn explains. 48 states and the District of Columbia will turn back their clocks. It will be lighter out when you get up in the morning, but will get dreary and dark early. 
earlier in the evening. CBS News Brief. I'm Allison Keyes. And I'm proud to be an American where at least I know I'm free. And I won't forget the men who died who gave that right to me. And I gladly stand up. Welcome back to Wealth Wake Up Live. Donahue with you this Saturday morning. Yeah, let's take some look at the most recent IRS data that we have. It actually comes from 2020, and it'll help give us a comprehensive understanding of the federal income tax landscape in America. So amid the ongoing public discourse, you often encounter discussions about the wealthy not paying their fair share, or for instances like Warren Buffett, paying a lower tax rate than his 20 office colleagues, which some view as an evidence that the tax system is not progressive enough. But what do the actual data reveal and what it may hold some really surprising revelations? To offer deeper insights, I'm going to look at three different looks at this. First of all, let's talk about average tax rates. And um, we'll talk about the bottom 50%, the... Uh, 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 the next 25%, and then up to the next 10, and the next 5, and the next 1, and the top 1%. And the most recent IRS data from 2020 underscores the highly progressive nature of the federal income tax system. Individuals in the top 1%, those are with an adjusted gross income of $548,336 or higher, paid an average of 26% of their income to the federal government. Meanwhile, those in the bottom 50%, they are earning 42184 or less, have an average income tax rate of 3.1%. This is a significant difference. shows that the top 1% pay an average federal income tax that is 8.4% times higher than the bottom half of all taxpayers. And so as an example, that bottom half pays 3.1%. The next 25% pays about 6.5%. The next 10% pays 9.5%. Then we have the uh, next 5% pays 13.1%. The next uh, 1% above that pay 17.3%. And the top 1% pay 26%. Also, we can look at the share of total adjusted gross income versus total income tax paces, uh, taxes paid. And the top 1% comprise of roughly 1.6 million income tax returns. They make up 22.2% of the total adjusted gross income, but they shoulder 43.3% of overall tax income tax burden. Conversely, the bottom half, consisting of nearly 79 million taxpayers, pay up to uh, 10.2% of the total adjusted gross income, yet their federal tax burden is comparatively light at 2.3%. It's worth noting that the bottom 96% of taxpayers, accounting for more than 151.2 million tax returns and 64.8% of adjusted gross income, collectively bear about 40.5% of the federal income tax load. They still fall short of the share carried by the one, top 1%, which one again, again, again is 42.3%. So the top 1% pays 42.3%. The next, the um, 
uh, bottom half, as I mentioned a minute ago, pay a little bit less than they do in total. Then let's talk about the share of federal income tax liabilities. Over the past four decades, those within the highest income tax quintile have consistently witnessed their portion of the federal income tax burden to increase, rising from 65% in 1979 to 89.7%. So once again, those in the highest income tax quintile have consistently witnessed their portion of the federal income tax burden to increase. They pay 65 or from they pay now pay 89.7% in 2019, the most year recent year recorded by the Congressional Budget Office. You have a stark contrast with those of the lower four uh, quintiles that have experienced a different trajectory. The lowest and second quartiles have reduced their tax liability to minus 4.8% and 1.6%. In other words, they've had a 4.8% and a 1.6% reduction, respectively. Um, in 19, uh, they were paying four point. They were paying one tenth of one percent, minus one tenth of one percent in the bottom group in in 1979, and 4.2 percent in in 1979. So that means that the bottom 40 percent not only pay no federal income tax, but also receive additional income. The middle income to a quartile has also experienced a decline, falling to 3.5% in 2019 from 10.7% in 79. Similarly, the fourth income quartile has increased to 13.1% from 20.2% over the same period of time, has decreased, I said, to 13.1%. So basically the, the summation of all this is that the higher income taxpayers are paying a larger increasing share and those that are on the low end are actually paying a decreasing amount. Now, talking about state income, or talking about income taxes, saw a news release came out this week talking about Jeff Bezos, who was the founder of Amazon, and basically has said he's saying goodbye to Washington. And he also basically is doing this a lot for tax reasons. He's trading the shores of Lake Washington for the beaches of South Florida. The announcement of his move was made for various reasons. The notable is the impact on the recently enacted Washington State excise tax on capital gains and what it would have on the Amazon founder. As noted in the Friends of Tax, uh, tax Foundation, uh, Bezos sold $15 billion in stocks before the new law took effect, potentially saving about a billion dollars. He moved his primary residence, Florida, which would ensure that any future SOX sales are not going to be subject to that income tax or that excise tax. So for every billion dollars that was sold, he would have paid the state of Washington $70 million. With an estimated share of over $130 billion, you can add up real quickly. The capital gains tax isn't the only enacted on a tax enacted on potential taxes on him that he can avoid. He also have a proposed wealth tax that would take 1% of financial assets excluding the first $250 million. This means that he would have an annual tax rate of over a billion dollars on his Amazon holdings. The current estate tax would also take 20% upon his death. So what does this mean for Washington State? Well, it says that basically taxes have consequences. For every Jeff Bezos or Fisher Investments, which is also leaving the state, that make headlines for moving, there are many more who quietly leave the state. Washington's competitive advantage for decades was this lack of an income tax. People and businesses will continue to leave for more tax-friendly states, and it shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. 
Washington shouldn't build its financial futures on risky and volatile taxes like the Washington capital gains excise tax. The move highlights the inherent law flaw in taxes that target individuals and businesses. So a little interesting FYI. And we got another interesting FYI that we saw this week came out about the paid leave tax that we're paying now. It's a payroll tax coming out of your paycheck. And uh, the study found out that the paid leave tax isn't primarily helping people in need. It's going to middle and upper income wage earners. And basically, the you have an hourly wage or a paid family and medical leave recipient in Washington State. It's higher than what we're comfortable with. Lawmakers should explain to all workers why they think it's good policy to take money from low-income workers and give it to people with ample resources. So if you're using the hourly wage estimates from the Employment Security Department, here are the earnings of people who took the program's tax dollars in the last fiscal year, and that was July 22nd of 22 through June of 23. Up to $18 an hour, they received about 12% of the uh, payments. Those between 18 and $24 an hour made had received over 21% of the benefits. Those between 24 and $35 an hour got 30, 26% of the benefits. Also, between 35 and $61 an hour, they also got 26%. And those making more than $16 an hour got 16%. We saw that lower-income workers shouldn't be paying higher income taxes to, to bond with babies or take medical leave for those that are making higher income and off of work. They should be able to keep more of their wages for their own needs. But the state's Paid Family and Medical Leave Program, or PFML program, is fueled by employee wages. The tax is eight-tenths of one percent of wages this year. That's eight-tenths of one percent. Whether you like it or not, that is an income tax. It represents a doubling of the payroll tax in its short lifetime. The paid family leave also requires employers to contribute to the fund, even though many employers already have employees pay, pay, give paid time off for sickness or for family needs. The total payment required of a worker who made $50,000 in 2023 was $400. The increase in the uh, tax is said to have happened because of high use of the program. Some government le uh, leaders, of course, are proud of that, suggest it shows how much the program was needed. But did, people, did the people need this program? Maybe some, but all recipients no doubt enjoyed greater ease managing life happenings, but they did so at the expense of others who then had a harder time making ends meet. The family leave is laced with entitlement. It's hard not to feel entitled to other people's money when you have faced to pour, forced to pour wages into a shared piggy bank. So I hope the state doesn't ever require low-income workers to start paying into the fund other workers can use for vacation time or mental health days. Uh, all Washingtonians would benefit from policies that encourage and expect self-sufficiency, tapping taxpayer generosity only for the vulnerable, safety nets for people in need are worthy of support, building social programs that act as safety nets for people that are not in need, and the, uh, the harms the finance of others are less fortunate that are not. So inflation is tough. It can be aggravating, but we need to take a look at how this money is, what they're doing, how it's coming in, and where it's going. Going to take a quick break again. We'll be back in a minute. Paid political announcement. I'm Kathy Kirshner, your current District 4 Whatcom County Council representative, and I want to continue my service to you. 
Four years ago, I was honored to be returned to the County Council by an overwhelming 74% of the voters. I have not taken your trust in me for granted. Working diligently to stand up for and honor District 4 values, building trust and respect among other community leaders, even those with differing opinions, and finding solutions that work. My priorities are simple, to put you first and solve our problems. This means being a leader who listens, understands, works for you, and doesn't waste your time or money. I believe smart government is about bringing people together, building trust, and finding the best solutions for the most people. That is what I will continue to do when re-elected to represent District 4 on the Whatcom County Council. I ask for your vote by November 7th. Paid for by Vote Kathy Kirshner. KGMI invites you on an adventure to explore the Americana that is Boston and Cape Cod with me, Deanna Haraluk, on KGMI's Cape Cod and the Islands Tour, June 1st through the 7th with Bel Air Tours and Adventures. Discover the history of Boston, explore Cape Cod and Nantucket Island, enjoy a traditional New England lobster dinner, and more. Be a part of the experience. Find out more. Check out the Cape Cod and the Islands Tour page on our website, KGMI.com, for more information about this once-in-a-lifetime experience. KGMI Connects with Joe Tian is about our community and you. Hey, I, I want to uh, agree with the uh, with what Michelle said as far as you uh, listening very good to everybody and being open to every conversation, which is, I think, why so many people call. Join us each weekday at 4 p.m. for KGMI Connects. God bless you, Joe, for what you're doing, and, and we're glad to have you out there. On KGMI News Talk 790, 96.5 FM, and KGMI.com. Because there ain't no doubt I love this land. God bless the USA. Saturday morning. We are live. We're in studio. You got questions for me? You can always give me a call. 360-733-1200. I'm going to take a moment here and get a little personal. Um, A lot of people know this, but I don't make a big deal of it. But uh, I've been sober for 41 years as of last July. And um, my path to sobriety um, involved my being involved in service work in Alcoholics Anonymous for close to 20 years. And included in that path was the um, service work where the state, uh, Western Washington area, had six elected positions of two years each, so a total of 12 years that I spent serving in each of those two two two-year sta- uh, positions. And among other things, my uh, time and service required that I go into the state prison system. And I've been in a good share of the prisons in the state at least three times, some of them more than that. And the reason I'm taking this moment is that I want to say that I support Prop 4, which is the need for a new justice center here in Whatcom County. Um, to give you an example, back uh, when I was doing my service work, there's a Stafford Creek prison over in Aberdeen area. And I went in there one time to do my delegates report. I had a guy come up to me and he says, oh, you're from Bellingham, aren't you? And I said, yeah. He says, I am too. I'm going to get out in about a month. And I said, well, great. Maybe I'll see you over there. Best of luck. And we talked for a few minutes. And I did my presentation that I had to make and left. And a year later, I had to go back there for the second time and do another report. And um, I came in and this same guy walked up to me and he 
says, oh, says, remember me? And I said, yeah. But I said, you told me you were getting out. But I said, I never saw you around. And he's, well, you know, he's, I got out there, but I can't make it out there. And, you know, I've been around this system a long time and did a lot of work when I was doing my service work and heard a lot of stories like that where our judicial system is not meeting the requirements that we need. And the current jail here in Whatcom County does not have the facilities to meet those needs for people that do need them. Um, one of the examples that I use a lot is a uh, organization down in San Francisco that I came across, what, 20-some years ago now, um, but it's an organization called the Delancey Street Foundation. Um, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about Delancey Street, except that they had uh, 300 uh, parolees, basically, that were there that were all alcohol and drug addicts. And um, it was a two-year program with housing, but they also had job training. They had uh, educational training, et cetera. The proposal for this new jail will include a path down that path that I think is really important to try to be more of an inclusive, try to help the, the, the inmates uh, develop a better life and have a better path when they get out. And so I'm a strong believer that this Prop 4 is something that we need to vote yes for. It's really needed. The capacity issues that we have in the local jail today, they're only able to incarcerate those that are really bad, uh, those that aren't so bad. I know if you listen to Saturday Morning Live this morning with Lyle, uh, he had a, a guest on there from the Lummi Nation talking about how the Lummi Nation is and, and the natives in general are, are addressing the fentanyl crisis. And um, I think it's just a good example of what needs to be done in the community. There needs to be more, but we have to have a facility that's capable of doing that. So I really would encourage you to vote yes for that jail. And I know there's all kinds of arguments about past failures and taxes and all the other good things. I don't like paying more taxes either, but I know that this is something that the community needs. So I felt like it was worth my time to take a couple minutes today talking a little bit about my experience and uh, my hands-on experience, I should say. And I've seen both sides of this discussion. We definitely need to take a step forward in Whatcom County. So I would say vote yes on Prop 4. Okay, uh, moving on here. We saw that the Department of Labor and the White House this week unveiled their latest fiduciary proposal to cover rollover advice. That is rollover advice from retirement plans like 401ks, 403bs, 457 plans, etc. And basically, after much anticipation, the White House and the Department of Labor on October 31st did unveil a new proposal to amend the definition of what we call a fiduciary and it require rollover advice to be in the best interest of the saver or the investor. In this proposed retirement security rule, the department calls for changing its fiduciary definition by removing what we call regular basis prong of the five-part test used to determine whether a financial professional is considered an investment advice fiduciary under ERISA. The move would lead one-time rollover advice to fall under the fiduciary standard. Now, those of us on our side that are registered investment advisors already fall under this standard, just as an FYI. But what this amounts to is that accounts held in workplace retirement accounts often represent the largest savings that an individual has. The financial services provider often have strong economic incentives to recommend that the investors roll their money over into one of the institutional's IRAs or annuities, the department said in their fact sheet. 
They also said applying the ERISA fiduciary standard to these transactions is going to provide a significant protection for retirement investors. The proposal also would apply a best interest standard and advice that plan sponsors receive from investments in their 401ks and other employer-sponsored lineups. So, so basically, they said retirement funds are often the largest savings people have. This came from Acting Labor Secretary Julie Sue, and um, she said, little by little, paychecks by paycheck, year after year, people add to these accounts over their entire working lives. So when individuals or companies, including small businesses, hire an advisor to help them make investment decisions regarding a retirement savings, they should be able to get trust. They should be able to trust the advice that they're getting. So basically what this proposal will do, it'll give the public a 60-day comment period upon publication in the Federal Register. It'll align with the Securities Exchange Commission's regulation best interest. Those of us on our site are already covered by the SEC's best interest rule. And that stipulates that retirement advisors must provide advice in the saver's best interest, regardless of whether they're recommending a security or an insurance product. So currently, the SEC's packet rule package, which took effect in 2020, does not generally cover advice regarding commodities or insurance, such as advice governed by state law. For example, Reg B-1 does not cover advice when an IRA owner purchases an annuity, but such a purchase would be covered by the department's proposal. I'm going to get into this a little bit deeper here in a minute. But, of course, the responsible retirement advisors deserve to be paid for their work. And this is according to Lionel Brennard, who's director of the National Economic Council, on this call. But as part of the October 31st proposal, the department is also offering amendments to several prohibited transaction exemptions. And so basically what they're doing is they're saying that we have to act as fiduciaries and we'll use them to follow consistent and protective compliance requirements, including an obligation to act in the retirement investor's best interest, according to the administration officials. So right now, let's give you a little bit more history. Uh, Under the Obama administration in 2016, the department finalized a regulation known as the fiduciary rule that broadened the definition of a person or entity taking fiduciary responsibilities. It replaced the five-part test used to determine whether an investment professional or financial institution did serve as a fiduciary. But in 2018, there was a three-judge panel in the Fifth Circuit of a, uh, in New Orleans that vacated the rule in a two-to-one decision, saying the department exceeded its authority. The Trump administration decided not to appeal the decision. But in 2020, it announced the final rule in stating the five-part test. Then later that year, it finalized the prohibited transaction exemption that permitted investment advice fiduciaries to receive compensation for more guidance, including advice to roll over assets from a retirement plan to an IRA. Well, then the Biden administration in 21 issued guidelines in the form of frequently asked questions that related, that related to the Trump era exemption. That guidance has faced legal challenges. February, federal judge vacated one of the frequently asked questions that outlined when rollover advice is considered on a regular basis. So there's opposing views on this. The industry groups have already started to signal that they don't like what's going on. We saw the president and CEO of the Insured Retirement Institute said in a LinkedIn post in his, his organization will fight this proposal just as it did with the DOL's 2016 poorly concocted fiduciary rule that has masqueraded as a consumer protection instead caused extensive harm. A federal court vacated that rule not only after 10 million small retirement owners, but with more than 90 billion in retirement savings lost the ability to work with, a preferred, with their preferred financial professionals. Well, 
Hoffman Capitol Hill rep, uh, Virginia Fox, Republican North Carolina, who's chair of the House Education and Workforce Committee, said in a statement that the latest proposal is just new lipstick on the same old pig and it will harm retirement plans, retirees, and savers. She added that the DOL's proposal reaches well beyond its jurisdiction. Instead of regulating retirement plans, DOL is trying to regulate the individuals do with their own retirement. So, again, she wasn't in favor. Now, her counterpart on the committee, however, who's the ranking member, was also a Democrat from Virginia, uh, had a different viewpoint and said that the proposal is crucial to have workers better prepare for retirement. While most advisors put the retirement plan's interest first, unscrupulous retirement professionals continue to get pad their home pockets by steering clients to high-fee investment products lower produce lower returns for retirement savers. So consumers' groups also welcomed the proposal. In a joint statement, steering group members of Save Our Retirement Coalition, which includes organizations like the AARP, AFL-CIO, Consumer Federation of America, Pension Rights Center, said the proposal is a major milestone in the long fight to bring millions of Americans one step closer to secure, dignified retirement. It says, we look forward to reviewing this proposal in detail, submitting our comments, and working to help craft the strongest possible rule to ensure that retirement savers receive investment advice that is in their best interest, not the self-interest of financial professionals that turn their advice into their retirement investments. So and then when asked if, this, if the proposal is likely to face a legal challenge, Fred Reich, who is a partner of, uh, of uh, Frage, Drinker, Biddle, and Wraith, told Pension Investments, I can't imagine that it won't be challenged. Essentially what we're seeing is you're seeing two different arguments come from two different sides of the industry. Those of us on the investment side of the industry are in favor of this, really feel that there's been a lot of misuse and mis, uh, I will say, not good products out there over the years been sold a lot, especially in the indexed annuity area. Uh, high high commissions paid. Uh, I get calls from wholesalers saying, "Gee, sell this product, sell that product. We'll pay you twelve percent." I'll tell you what, that's three or four times as much as the average advisor ever would make off of a mutual fund, as an example. And we just don't do index rate annuities. I'll just say that straight up. Now, yesterday or and Thursday and yesterday, I spent. Uh, Two days in my semi-annual meeting with Ed Slot in the Ed Slot Advisor Group that we just finished our 19th year, meeting twice a year, talking about everything's IRA. Um, on Tuesday morning, he also re- released a, a uh, report saying that the Ed Slot organization, for example, was totally behind the DOL. Uh, proposal that he felt it was a step in the right direction. And this is a firm that specializes in working with us to help us work with our clients to do IRA rollovers and that type of distribution planning. So just a little FYI there, I think it's important for us to throw it out there. I was going to talk a little bit about increase in uh, contribution limits that you have. There will be new limits and new higher limits for 2024. I'll cover that on tomorrow's show. So with that, don't forget to dial us in tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. Listen to our Sunday show. Got questions for me? Give me a call, 360-733-1200. And I hope you have a great day, and thank you for listening.
The opinions voiced on the show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a decision. 